I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're going to discuss China's mounting use of economic coercion against Australia. We'll compare it to prior cases of Chinese coercion and evaluate its significance for Chinese foreign policy. China and Australia have long had a close and mutually beneficial economic relationship. China is one of Australia's biggest foreign investors and its top export market, worth $104 billion dollars in 2019, according to the IMF. In recent years, however, trade tensions have risen as the broader bilateral relationship has come under strain. It began in 2017 when Australia introduced foreign interference laws to Parliament in response to growing concerns about Chinese interference in Australian politics and society. The following year, Australia became the first country to effectively ban Chinese tech giants Huawei and ZTE from its next-generation 5G telecom network on national security grounds. And then in April 2020, Australia touched a raw nerve in Beijing by calling for an inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Trade restrictions imposed by China have escalated over this period, though Chinese officials deny that they are using economic coercion to compel Canberra to change its policies. To discuss the ongoing tension between Australia and China, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the research director at the Perth, USA Asia Center, and he specializes in the regional economic integration of the Indo-Pacific and has particular expertise in the politics of trade agreements, regional economic institutions, and Australia's economic ties with regional countries. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show, Bonnie. Well, this is really a, a timely discussion. And、uh, I want to start by maybe looking back at some of these earlier cases of Chinese economic coercion. And you know, based on my research, the earliest case was 2008, and at that time we had、uh, Chinese citizens boycotting the French supermarket、uh, Carrefour after pro-Tibetan protesters were interfering with the Olympic torch being passed through Paris. And French President Sarkozy refused to commit to attending the Olympics opening ceremony in Beijing. And since then, there's just been over a dozen of other cases where China's used economic and trade pressure against other countries in order to influence their policies. So, before we get into the Australian case, can you talk a little bit about the various means that China has used in these prior campaigns, and what are the common threads? So China certainly has form for this kind of use of trade coercion in the past, and the principal resource that they're levering is China's huge market and its significant place in the global trade system. There are over,、uh, I think, the count is close to 140 countries now for which China is the number one trade partner, and this provides a form of economic leverage that can be exploited during diplomatic incidents. Typically, what we've seen China do in previous cases is a combination. Of what we might consider classic trade sanctions, so using well-established trade measures such as anti-dumping duties and things like that, but it's often combined with, in strategic terms, would be known as a grey zone form of coercion, not officially acknowledged sanctions. 
but where regulatory policies or various forms of action by the Chinese government are used to cut off a country's trade with the country in some way. We see this in terms of, say, campaigns against made in certain products, driving, um, a, say, the South Korean supermarket chain that was effectively forced out to the Chinese market. And we've also seen this in the Australian case recently, where a number of Australian exports to China have simply been rejected by customs officials at Chinese airports and um, seaports on fairly non-existent grounds. All of that's officially denied as a sanction by the Chinese government, but it's absolutely going on and it's absolutely interrupting trade. So really what we see here is a combination of clear and also grey zone coercion to say access to the large Chinese market is conditional on a certain degree of political behaviour by government and we're very willing to lean on that lever in order to change other governments' behaviour, both in terms of their foreign policy but also what they do domestically at home. So if we dig into the Australian case a little, does this case look like all the prior cases? Are there unusual things about it? Did the trade actions against China come early or were there political actions that were taken first and then those didn't have the desired result and the the trade steps came, came later? Does this look like a coherent strategy that China is using? And and is this just being applied against many countries and Australia looks the same or is it different? Australia-China bilateral political relations have been on a fairly downward trajectory for almost five years now. The list of things that Australia is concerned about and speaks out on would probably be fairly familiar to a US audience. Issues such as China's militarisation of the South China Sea, human rights issues in Xinjiang, foreign interference in Australia, where there's been a number of espionage and cyber hacking cases. And closer to home this year, we've also seen the effective legal annexure of Hong Kong. But what's changed in 2020 is we've seen a range of trade sanctions starting to be applied. It first started in May when massive and unjustified anti-dumping duties were put against Australian barley exports, which effectively priced a billion dollars worth of barley exports out of the Chinese market overnight. Things then pivoted around to more of those grey zone type sanctions. So what we've seen is a number of Australian agricultural products held up at Chinese customs on food safety grounds. Last week, there was two shipments of rock lobsters, which actually died at Shanghai Airport because the customs inspector just didn't get around to inspecting them in time before the animals actually died from lack of maintenance. And so we've seen a whole suite of these applied since May till now over the last six months. Um, The list has expanded steadily fortnight by fortnight, and we're now up to 13 different products that have been affected in some way or another, whether it was with a white zone or a grey zone sanction of some state, some kind. It's a serious amount of resources involved. Those 13 industries exported 52 billion Australian dollars of exports to China in 2019 last year. At current exchange rate, that'd be a bit over 40 billion US. So it's a fairly serious hit to the Australian economy. That represents about 10% of Australia's total exports to any country at all. So we've certainly seen what had been a political dispute boiling away for two or three years over issues a lot of people would recognise, then suddenly turn into this quite hostile and now very highly valued trade dispute. Has Beijing carefully targeted products that it can easily obtain from other countries and refrain from imposing restrictions on products that it is really dependent on Australia for and can easily find a substitute. So iron ore comes to mind, for example. Is that the pattern we're seeing with Australia? 
Uh, yes, certainly that has been the case. These are surgically targeted sanctions. What we initially saw in the early stages of the process was picking industries that had a very high level of dependence on the Chinese market. Um, and the political logic here was an industry such as barley, which exported 80% of its product to China. If you hit that industry with 80% of its market wiped out, you could attempt to convert them into a powerful political lobby. That industry would then go to the Australian government in Canberra and say, we're ruined unless some kind of reset or modus vivendi could be found with China, please do so. So we saw that there. We've had other industries, rock lobsters, 94% to China, timber, 90% to China. So there was a particular targeting of attempting to make the maximise the pain. What's happened since that time is as it's gone on and on for so many months, China's had to work down the list of things we export to them, and they've almost run out of targets now. Um, if you look at the top 20 exports to China, which is basically the entire sum, almost everything has been hit and only three products have been spared. Iron ore and natural gas, and they have been spared largely due to China's dependence. There's no alternative supplier and cutting off supply would actually impose significant economic costs on their industrial structure, perhaps even larger costs for the Chinese side in Australia. And bizarrely, one other product that hasn't been hit, which is the Australian dairy industry. One could speculate on why dairy has been exempted, but a hypothesis I'd offer is it would actually be to do with the politics of baby milk formula in China, which some would be familiar with as a very hot button issue amongst um, Chinese families. So Australian baby formula is still able to get through unhindered. But we've now got to the point that practically everything else of substance that Australia sells to China has been affected in some way by one of these sanctions. It is a full court press now. You know, it seems that Australia is an unusual case, both in the fact that almost all of its exports to China have been affected, as you uh, as you mentioned, but also in China's response in the form of these demands. So we know that China issued a, a list of 14 demands that, in essence, would require Australia to halt or even reverse decisions and policies that have been made to defend its interests, such as the implementation of laws that now bar political campaign contributions by foreigners. So surely the Chinese really don't expect that Canberra is going to accede to these 14 demands. So what do you think this tells us about Chinese foreign policy? What do you think they're really targeting? If they're not going to persuade Australia to change its policies, then why do you think that they are going through this exercise? There's two different political logics to how this kind of geoeconomic sanction works. And one's the one we just previously discussed, the domestic logic. Impose pain on affected industries in the hope they will become a lobby group for better relationships. Um, you know, Hirschman famously called this a commercial fifth column. But there's also the international audience for this, which is the demonstration effect. If you do this, this will be the consequences. And I think the international logic is really clearly revealed in this 14 grievances list that the Chinese embassy hopefully leaked. I think international audiences who've read this list were kind of horrified by some of the things on it. It included 
effectively that Australia has a free press, that we have a parliamentary system where elected representatives are able to speak their mind freely on the floor of our parliament. China has no expectation that Australia is going to reform either or any of those things. What that list really is, is it's really actually designed for a foreign audience, that international logic. Um, I'd be particularly looking at other countries in the region that might potentially find themselves in a similar situation in the future. A Korea, which has been hit before, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines. And this is kind of a what-not-to-do list for governments around the Indo-Pacific region. If you let your press run a lot of anti-China stories, if you let your parliamentarians or Congress people give speeches on the floor of your house negative to China, this might be coming for you in the future. So the fact that the list is unrealistic and outrageous It's not targeted for an Australian audience, probably not for a US or European or British audience either. This is actually targeted at Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur far more and saying, here's a handbook of how not to upset us in the future. If we look at what China is doing from the perspective of international law and particularly the World Trade Organization, do you think that these trade restriction measures are clear violations of WTO rules, or is this gray area? Some people say that what China is doing is really no different from the economic sanctions that the United States and other countries impose. So do you agree with that? Or is it different because we have clear laws in our country, as I know you do in yours, about sanctions and how we apply them? Look, it is certainly outside the spirit of the World Trade Organization. Those who are familiar with the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, would be aware that there is no hurt feelings exemption that says everything else in this agreement doesn't apply if a foreign country hurts your feelings. And this is certainly the case. All of these measures don't uphold any of the normal standards of the World Trade Organization. Or I'd add the um, bilateral Australia-China Free Trade Agreement that was signed in 2015. What you can do about that, however, runs up against the practicalities of international law. In a few of the cases, particularly barley, wine and coal, China has used more conventional white zone trade coercion measures, so anti-dumping duties or quota allocations. And because they are enacted through a circular issued by MOFCOM, they are inherently WTO litigable. You can actually point to the circular, say they have applied this tariff, let's go and have an argument in Geneva over whether the methodology for applying it was done appropriately. And this is what the Australian government has actually announced. We'll be launching an anti-dumping dispute over the barley duties and may be looking to do the same for wine and coal in the future. The challenge for using an international trade law to handle these issues gets more difficult when we look at the grey zone areas. And these are some of our agricultural products where a shipment gets through, but then the next one gets held up by customs. We've also had confirmed reports that Chinese importing agents, companies that do importing, have been given a so-called quiet conversation by a CCP official telling them not to buy any more of a certain Australian product for the next three months. That stuff is certainly also within breach of WTO rules, but it is very hard to litigate effectively. The evidentiary base to prove that through the WTO process is very high, 
one would effectively need Chinese customs agents to turn Queen's evidence against their own government in a hearing in Geneva. And so the difficulty with air products that have been hit by those grey zone trade sanctions is that there's not realistically a WTO or any other international legal instrument solution. So while using that will be helpful for Australia and like-minded friends on, on some of the products affected, in other cases, there's practically nothing we can do using international law. So this WTO case only refers to barley and other countries can join this case in some way, supporting China in, in the WTO. Is that correct? Yes, it certainly does. So the Australian government has formally notified that we'll launch a case just on barley, which was the first of the 13 products affected. They've also indicated they're considering wine as well. So that reflects the fact that some time needs to be taken to consult with industry and get paperwork and the, build the legal case before you formally notify. One of the unique features of the WTO dispute is it fundamentally multilateralizes what has up until now been a bilateral issue. Through the WTO process, other countries are allowed to be part of the proceedings. It's technically referred to as reserving one's third party rights. And this reflects the fact that the WTO case doesn't just establish rules for Australia-China trade, but is actually built into global trade law precedent. And I think what we'll see is a number of countries in the last week or two have actually started making statements of various kinds of public support in favour of Australia. Different parts of the British, Japanese, EU, United States, and just yesterday, New Zealand political systems have come out and said, we stand with Australia against this coercive use of trade in breach of the World Trade Organization. And so I think what we'll expect to see once this case comes up through the WTO process is a number of other countries committed to rules-based trade system joining that case and amicusing in support of Australia's position. This is particularly helpful because Australia is a small country and while we have a, a highly competent trade department in our foreign affairs ministry, it is also small. The ability to be able to work with friends in Japan and Europe and the US and draw on resources of organisations such as the United States Trade Representative's Office will really give Australia a better chance to fight this effectively in Geneva. But this is likely to take several years before we actually get a ruling, right? Yeah, under normal circumstances, it will take quite some time. The WTO process is very thorough and therefore very slow. In the past, I would have estimated two to three years for one of these cases because there are some go-slow options available to China during the process. But one of the challenges we're seeing right at the moment is due to some of the obstructionist behaviour of the Trump administration towards the WTO, that vetoing a Director General appointment recently, appointments to the appellate body, and a lot of staffing issues further down the line as well, unfilled staff positions. There has actually accumulated a backlog of WTO dispute cases that just haven't been processed on time. So under normal circumstances, it would have been two or three years, but with the backlog, it could yet be more. We'd be interested to look at how the incoming Biden administration is actually going to engage with the World Trade Organization. There are certainly things that could be done in terms of removing appointment vetoes, that would be able to unlock at least and clear some of that backlog in fairly short order. So a lot of the timeline probably will actually come down to how the Biden administration next year chooses to engage with and resource or not resource core WTO functions. So in prior cases where China has used economic and coercion against other countries, my guess is that they have seen that there has been some political goal that they have achieved 
And so I'm wondering how you think China looks at the use of these trade measures. They obviously keep using them. So they may have a domestic purpose. They may be scaring other countries. They may be trying to deter others from challenging Chinese interests. China keeps using these coercive measures and will continue to do so even if they use WTO cases. And as part of this question, I was wondering if you could talk about any prior case of economic coercion where there has been a WTO case. And if I remember correctly, in 2010, when the Japanese had their access to rare earth imports from China restricted, that there was a WTO case and then China lost that. But that didn't then affect China's willingness to use economic coercion again. No, and that's a very good point. I think at the moment, China is very frustrated that this isn't having the desired effect with Australia. With almost mundane regularity, every two or three weeks, another product has been sanctioned this year. And every time the Australian government's approach has been the same. We remind China of its international law obligations and say we won't be subject to coercion. And this is a level of defiance that we really haven't seen from other countries that have been subject to these sanctions in the past. Um, A lot have attempted to negotiate and find a diplomatic off-ramp from this. Probably good examples would be Norway and also South Korea that were able to finesse diplomatic statements where they put out a statement that said something that could be read in the Chinese mind as being appeasing or respecting China's core interests, while at the same time not making firm foreign policy commitments on their own. I think their expectation was that Australia would be fairly scared and move in that direction quickly. And the fact that we haven't is causing great frustration. Indeed, it explains the escalation earlier this week where the Chinese foreign ministry issued a fairly odious doctored image of an Australian soldier ostensibly committing a war crime onto Twitter in an attempt to effectively get a rise, so to speak, out of the Australian government. Trade sanctions didn't get you to respond. Now we're going to put out fairly disgusting propaganda. But the Japanese rare earths case is a good example. It is the only one where an affected country has actually gone to the World Trade Organization to fight this. And what interestingly happened in the Japanese case is that nor was it alone. There are a number of disputes raised that were backed in by the United States and the EU trade representatives, and all three of the cases actually resulted in fairly significant wins for Japan, US and EU, based around making new rules for how countries were allowed to restrict the export of critical minerals such as rare earths. That certainly hasn't dissuaded China from repeating the process again. But what we've seen since 2010 is most of the other affected countries have not felt themselves in a position to litigate and take that position. Japan felt it could because it had the support of the United States. And that trade dispute had actually originated over a, an issue to do with the Senkaku Islands, which, as I'm sure the US audience would know, is covered by Japan's defence arrangements with the United States. So Australia and Japan may be in a different case as US allies and hopefully countries that will be able to draw on US support to actually fight these cases. That could ultimately prove very critical in how successful and how quickly we're successful through the Geneva process. For background on the WTO issue, I wanted to ask whether China has launched investigations against Australia in the past. You know, their foreign ministry spokesman claimed that Australia has launched 106 anti-dumping and anti-subsidy investigations against China. So has this been pretty much one way or have the Chinese also gone after Australia? 
It has fairly been one way at the moment. Australia has launched 106 anti-dumping investigations. We haven't applied 106 anti-dumping duties. That's the number of times that industry has asked the Australian government to ask the question. There has been a number of anti-dumping duties applied to Chinese products, particularly in the metals manufacturing steel industry, which as a US audience would know is extraordinarily highly subsidised within China and probably right to have anti-dumping duties applied. Australia has very rarely been subject to any trade sanctions or WTO cases at all. We maintain a very open trade regime and the Australian government, for better or worse, is one of the thinnest subsidisers of all governments. Industry complains that everyone else gets subsidies and we don't here. But that means we've very rarely found ourselves on the end of these cases. So it will be a bit of a transition for Australia. What is interesting, however, in that Chinese claim about Australia does this to us is it actually functions as a form of misinformation inserted into the Australian debate. This has been repeated, this line, which has come from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, has subsequently been repeated by a number of Australian businesses in an attempt to kind of muddy the waters in the national debate over what's going on here, rather than viewing this as a political sanction for Australia taking an independent position on issues such as the South China Sea or Hong Kong, which is what it fundamentally is. Oh, well, it might have something to do with the fact that you put an anti-dumping duty on our aluminium five years ago or something like this. And we have also seen, along with the formal trade sanctions, a lot of this red herring disinformation and misinformation being injected into the Australian public sphere, uh, very often via Twitter, in an attempt to create societal splits and division that might pressure the government. As I said, however, this campaign hasn't worked and the uh, Australian government thus far remains unmoved. My last question is basically how you think this is going to end. You know, some of these cases of coercion against countries have ended with a clear win for China. Like I would say the case of Norway, which awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to the Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo in 2010. That ended after some, you know, there were political as well as economic coercion measures. That ended in Oslo accepting a Chinese drafted joint statement in 2016 in which it said it respected China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And uh, it was very clearly wording that was inserted and created uh, by China. But in this case, this seems to be so pervasive and affects so many industries. And these are issues that Australia is just not going to cave in and compromise its sovereignty. Where do you think this is going? Many in Australia are asking that same question over the last few weeks. I think there's an interesting factor that comes into the Australian case that in a way is unique to how Australia behaves in the world in the Chinese mind. Um, amongst Chinese elites, particularly foreign policy elites, there is an abiding belief that when it comes to international relations, Australia is a proxy of the United States, that everything we do is either licensed explicitly by DC or in many cases, the idea has been put into our heads by Washington and that Australia could be viewed as a proxy state of a US foreign policy towards China in some way. Now, let me make it clear uh, to your listeners here that this is not the case at all. And indeed, what we've seen in the last couple of years on a number of issues during the Trump administration is it very often works the other way around, where Australia leads the US into certain foreign policy spaces rather than vice versa. But the fact is it remains an abiding belief, correct or otherwise, amongst Chinese elites that this is the case. 
This partially explains why Australia is being subject to such a high level of trade sanctioning and why now? Because in doing this to a a country like Australia, China is able to strike a blow against a US proxy in their mind without actually going through the risk of upsetting, say, the phase one trade arrangement between Trump and China that was negotiated last year, which finally brought an end to a trade war that would be very deleterious for China. They don't want to trade war with the United States directly, but they'd love to be able to do it to one of their proxies to send a message. And Australia is viewed as an ideal proxy. For similar reasons, this also explains why Canada is going through similar things as well at the moment, particularly with two Canadian citizens who are being held as hostages over the um, Meng Wanzhou case. So Australia and Canada are both in the boat of if you don't want to pick a fight with America, pick a fight with their assistance. If that analysis is correct, then it means that the circuit breaker is probably going to come based on how US-China relations develop in the early days of the incoming Biden administration. There's been significant debate about how Biden will play this. Will he stay as hard as Trump? Will he retreat from some battlefields but then move into other ones? Sitting here in Perth, Western Australia, I couldn't possibly inform a, a US audience as to what that's going to look like. But I think we'd be confident that there is going to be a change in the tenor of how that relationship works over the next six months. And this may ultimately be the factor that brings some restraint on China's side. Indeed, we saw Jake Sullivan, the NS National Security Advisor designate, making a statement saying that the United States under the Biden administration will stand by Australia in this case, which is a great escalation for China. Trade bashing Australia when it was Australia on its own had a certain set of costs attached with it, but trade bashing Australia when the US is in behind, potentially UK, EU, Japan, is a much more risky proposition for Chinese foreign policy. My honest belief is the thing that will short circuit this dispute will be the multilateralization of it, the bringing in of these additional parties, which will raise costs for China to the point that they will start backing away from these measures, which have been for seven months now completely unsuccessful. Well, I certainly hope you're right. Uh, And to all of our listeners, please watch this space because this is going to be an interesting test for Chinese foreign policy going forward. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, who is Research Director at the Perth U.S. Asia Center. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. 